Hey, welcome uh, to Redstone Church. Uh, so good to open up God's Word. Really love watching those little ones um, depart. Pretty cool. Uh, I had a dad moment this morning, and so um, my little five-year-old, um, he was holding the bulletin. He can't read three words in the English, you know, but, you know and he's, he's holding it, and he's like, oh, I know this song, and he'll just start blurting it out. So anyway, I just, I love having the kids in here. I love hearing my, my little ones sing, which is, which is really, really, really great. All right, so Mark chapter 4. Now, we are still on a journey through Mark, and uh, it's important that we have our scriptures open and ready to go. And today, we're going to be talking about Jesus as our teacher, all right? And so as far as the theme goes, the main redemptive idea is that Jesus is our teacher, and we'll have that hook. We won't try to depart from it, even though there's lots of, to cover in Mark chapter 4. We will single down on, or we'll reduce it down to this one moment that Jesus is our teacher. So speaking of teachers, um, I remember my very first day of kindergarten very, very clearly. Um, it was a little county school in Carroll County, Georgia. It's called Mount Zion Elementary School, and I walked down this long hallway. It was the last room on the left, and I walked into Mrs. Sessions' class. Now, Mrs. Sessions, I mean, she was just the epitome of a kindergarten teacher. She was old, and she was nice, and she was gentle, and she had a sweet, sweet voice, and she was just so caring and wonderful. I remember stepping into Mrs. Sessions' class, and she's going, hello, what is your name? And she gets down on the floor, and she's meeting a little, you know, a little guy, and, and so she gives us, and she shows me to her, to, to my seat, and those types of things, and I sit right next to a man. Amanda Kamen. Amanda Kamen puts her eyes on me, holds me, and kisses me. So my very first kiss came in kindergarten. I remember the very first day of kindergarten. I mean, it was crazy. But Mrs. Sessions was just an unbelievable teacher. I mean, caring and gentle and kind. But the story really happens two years ago when I was back there in Carroll County, Georgia, and sitting across the table from Mrs. Sessions. She's older now, right? I didn't ask her age. She looked exactly the same, right? But Mrs. Sessions is now sitting across the table of a guy who's grown up. And I'm there with Nicole and my kiddos. And Mrs. Sessions starts telling my family stories of that class and me. How remarkable is it that this lady had such a memory that, in the, that she was able to recall names and memories from the fall of 1983? That is a special person. And it wasn't just that our class or I was unique. She was able to tell stories of most of her classes and all of her people. Very different from Mr. or Coach McKinney. I had Coach McKinney, and in, in, I don't know whether it's American government or whether it was like civics or something like that. He was a coach. He was a little more like, you know, like brash and strong, and he really cared very little about the chalkboard and more like in your face, like you're going to get it. And so we were in this experiment where we were learning something about American government and those kinds of things, and we had to group up and pull something out of a hat. And we, my group pulled out the War of 1812, and we had to have an immersive experience where we had to create something that was on the card. And so we talked about it, and we was like, oh, the War of 1812, it was a great big deal. Let's, 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 let's try to create something to represent when the British stormed Washington, D.C. They went up to the steps of the White House 
had dinner, used uh, the British used our China, and then burnt down, or didn't burn down, but they burned the White House. Let's do something like that. And so we put popsicle sticks or something together. We painted it white. And then in class, we brought an aerosol can of hairspray and a lighter, right? That would never happen in the year 2018, right? That would never happen. So anyway, we were there in class, and someone, some joker, was like aerosoling like on the outside and then stick it inside the lollipop like house and just held it down. And I had the lighter. And I was like, and this is what happened when the British came onto our soil and burned down the White House. And I lit it like, and it went poof. My eyebrows and my eyelashes disappeared in a second. And we all looked to Coach McKinney, and he was like, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> so this is the power of, of not just coaches, but teachers in our lives, that they really can make a difference in our lives. And so as one teacher said, he says this, in teaching, you cannot see the fruit of one day's work. As a teacher, that just can't happen, right? However... It's invisible, and so it will remain for, for maybe 20 years. And so the, the day in the life of a teacher is just one step after another. And there's three things that we need to understand about teachers. Number one, they know more than us, right? That's what makes them teachers is that their knowledge, their skill set, their something, they know more than us. But it's more than lessons, right? It's, it's, it's also about us. So they don't just know more than we do. They know us. And that's why Mrs. Sessions was able to pinpoint our names and our classroom and the things that happen. So they know more, but they also know us. And if a teacher is worth anything, they also know where they're going, that there's a path or there's a desired, and they know what success looks like. They know that we are taking you on a journey. And so teachers have the power to really change the world because they're going to change their students. And a teacher will do anything at, at, with their power to make a lesson stick. So what teachers do is they really want the hook to be set and they want us to, to remember these lessons forever. And so often our teachers create these environments or create these opportunities so that we will never forget the war of 1812 and the China and the silver and the burning down. I mean, just, you just can't forget those types of things. And that's what teachers do is they really try. I remember what teachers have done to me. I remember being on a raft in a river just to learn a lesson. I remember being on a mountain overlooking scenery just to learn a lesson. I remember being forced into silence and solitude for a very long time for the sake of a lesson. I remember, I remember, and so can you. This is the power of what a teacher is able to do is to not just create a lesson, right? Not just know, right, the student, but also be able to understand that environments matter. Right now, if I was to open up Psalm 8, and I was to read to you Psalm 8 and try to teach you Psalm 8 that goes a little bit like this. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name above all of this earth. If I was to teach on that one verse inside of a gym without any windows, it would probably fall flat or just have some value. But if I paraded all of us up outside this door and up and over and then on top of the ridge that's right behind Providence Academy that overlooks Johnson City and is able to see the ridges of the Blue Ridge, to see Appalachia, and then said, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. 
Now you understand, because now you understand what above means. It means perspective and distance and, and, and depth and creativity and those types of things. And that as beautiful as it is up there, there's something that's above or greater than that. And that's the power of a lesson to a student inside of an environment. So we have to have students, we have to have teachers, but we also have to understand that environment matters. And Jesus knew this more than anything. Jesus was on a boat to teach the crowds. Jesus was crammed inside of a house to teach the crowds. Jesus stood up at a synagogue very properly like this to address religious leaders. We know that Jesus slipped off by himself. We knew that he took his disciples up on top of a mountain to make them apostles or make them his disciples. We knew that Jesus valued environments because environments made things stick. Today is about not just the teacher and the students, but Jesus being able to erect or, or, or transform an environment so that the lessons really do make a difference from us. So Jesus is about to prepare an environment. And so far, in the first three chapters of the, the book of Mark, Jesus has addressed the crowds because the crowds love Jesus. And so they just can't stop coming. They come in throngs, and they crowd in among him. They have to, he has to actually get on a boat in order to create an amphitheater so that all of the crowds can be able to hear him teach. I mean, they're just they're, they're coming from everywhere. Jesus is also trying to transform the understanding of what the kingdom of God. And so he's oftentimes inside these conversations or these teaching moments of, uh, with the religious leaders. He's trying to turn their perspective. And so it's not just the crowds, but it's also just these religious leaders that he is engaging in this teaching moment. But this episode, right, from this morning, it's not the crowds. It's not the religious uh, leaders. The people that are in focus, the people that have to learn this lesson are the disciples, are the people who are following after Jesus. Jesus is about to create an environment for a select group of people. Remember, he knows more. He knows who they are, and he also knows where he's taking them. Where he is going is on purpose. So chapter 4 of, verse, uh, of Mark, let's, let's just read the, the, um, the first verse. It's not in your bulletin, sorry. Um, chapter 4, verse 1 says this, And again, he began to teach beside the sea. All right, we can just stop there. This is the context in which Jesus is about to just unfold all of chapter 4. And he began to teach. So from that point on, from 2 all the way to um, 34, Jesus walks alongside this crowd of people, this very large crowd of people, and teaches them pretty formally. He uses a different technique called parables, which are more story-like to tell about the kingdom of God. But he is essentially the teacher, right? And so he is about to teach all of the crowds, all right? But let's drop all the way to verse 35 and to see something interesting. Now, on that day, the day that he was teaching, right, the, uh, the crowds, the many parables, on that day when it was evening, when evening had come, Jesus had been teaching. The assumption is all day long. It is now evening time. And on that day when, e when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus is still in teaching mode in verse 35, except for the scope of his teaching has been reduced 
away from the crowds and onto the disciples, and he knew that they had to have an immersive experience in order to get this lesson. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is simply telling the disciples, let's go. I want you guys to go with me. The idea is the teaching has not stopped, but the going is it's going to be narrowed down onto, uh, onto the disciples. All right, so for just for context's sake, let's read through the entire passage, and then we'll break it down, okay? So verse 35 and following. This is Mark chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking onto the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Why, are you, why have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this? That, uh, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. So is it possible that here in verse 30, what is it? Uh, 38. Is it, is it possible that the teacher, the capital T teacher, is it possible that Jesus is setting all of this, this boat and the storm, in order to teach you a lesson or teach them a lesson? Is it possible that Jesus would use this occasion or use this classroom as a learning environment to the disciples to make them uncomfortable? Is it possible that Jesus would create a scenario or an environment or a classroom, a teaching lesson, so that the disciples would be forced into questioning Jesus and questioning his character and questioning his power. Is that even possible that Jesus would go to all that just to create doubt in their hearts and in their minds? Uh, this passage is split up into three sections by the word great. All right, uh, the Greek word for great is mega. All right, it has made it into our vernacular. Everything's mega or big or an awesome, those kinds of things. And so you see mega happen three times, or the word great. There's a mega or a great storm in verse 37. There's a great calm in, in verse 39. And then there's a great, great fear that happens in verse 41. So there's this mega, there's three, these three megas, and I've got the, the, them highlighted in my Bible just because these are the kind of the piercing moments that this great storm and a great calm and a great fear. And so you see this back and forth between being uh, student-centric and teacher-centric and then back to, back to student-centric where this great calm and this great storm. And this. So that's how we are actually going to just kind of immerse ourselves in these three sections. So let's go back to verse 39, read them again with this idea that we are going to talk first about this mega or this great big storm. Now on that day when evening had come, 
He said to them, let us go across to the other side. We're going to get in a boat, and we're going to go across to the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, so he's leaving the crowd, and he's only got the set of disciples. They took him with them in a boat. He's in a boat with the disciples going across the sea with some other boats. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. It was a really, really big, big storm. But he was nowhere to be found. He was in the stern, and he was asleep on a cushion. So they shake Jesus, they wake him up, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? All right, so this is the great storm that we're talking about, verses 35 through 38. These are very experienced sailors. These, are, these, these guys have been on the water all their life. They understand these things. I mean, they, they've seen storms like this before. It must have been an unbelievable storm for these experienced sailors to be frightened, to truly think that their life was at stake. It really was an amazing thing. So the Sea of Galilee, it sits about 700 feet below uh, sea level. All right, so it's pretty low, and, but it's underneath the shadow of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon rises to about 9,200 feet, and, so about, and it's about 30 miles away. So there's some distance, but there's also some elevation. And so what happens, Mount Hermon is, is cooler up there. And so the cool airs of Mount Hermon come down into the Sea of Galilee and create some pretty impressive thunderstorms. The sailors knew all this. They knew the weather patterns. This was not something new, and yet it was absolutely something that they had never seen before. There were thunderstorms, right? And there's storms that are just typical there on the Sea of Galilee. And then there's this kind of storm, this mega or this great storm that has come across uh, these, these boats. So much so that there's three I-N-G words, right? They are, there's filling, there's breaking, and perishing, right? And so these I-N-G words just kind of bring force to the text, the fact that the boat was filling and that, that waves were breaking and that we were yelling, we are perishing. So just this idea grammatically is the fact that this storm threatened the very life. So much so that if you read the original, that the, the boat actually has a personification as if the waves were breaking onto him, meaning the boat. All right, so this was quite the threatening. The threatening. So this is, again, the audience is the disciples. All of this is for them. This is the apostles' first test. So the disciples have been onlookers. They have been looking at miracles and they've been listening to teaching, right? But it has not been so pointed to look at them and say, this is for you. Remember Jesus. Jesus, when he was ushered into ministry, he was sent into the wilderness. He was sent into the wild, among the wild beasts, in order to be tested, to be tempted by Satan himself. Jesus knew that for the disciples, they too needed to embark on something threatening. They needed to go into some environment that they could not control. Now, a little bit of an asterisk here is that Jesus wins, right? He is the one who is able to avoid temptation and conquer Satan. The disciples did not do so well. And so for all of us who are in kind of the grace movement, let us remember, remind ourselves, this is why Jesus had to come to conquer these types of things, to be tempted and survive, right? So if you find yourself in some kind of season of testing and you find yourself tripping up and failing and those kinds of things, remember, you are in the line of the disciples who are idiots, right? And they are just crazy. I mean, they just cannot get it right. So thank you, Jesus, for being Jesus 
I don't have to perform at this level, right? Part of the test is to see what actually comes out of your heart. Part of the test is not necessarily to pass the thing, but to actually hear your heart being honest, maybe for the first time in your life. I can't believe I said those types of things. I can't believe I I believe those types of things or I doubt those kinds of doubts. It cannot happen without some kind of pressure onto your life. And so this is a test for the apostles where it's up close and it's personal and they had to experience this themselves. And so what do they say? What's the first thing that we see? Not not only are they scared and afraid, there's a great storm, but what do we hear from the, the disciples? We hear a couple of questions, right? Like, uh, you're asleep. Do you not care? And so when true tests, right, given by our capital T teacher comes our way, Do not be surprised if the first thing that ekes out of your heart and mouth and in your mind are things of doubt. Because you've lost control. Fear has set into your life. And this thing, this storm, may take you out. And so... I don't think we need to be afraid of these types of things. We just need to be prepared that that we are capable of saying these types of things to our Heavenly Father. And so then doubt comes in is, is God or where is God inside the storms of this life? Surely it is not possible that the Lord did, did all of this work just to have me doubt Him. Or maybe He did. Maybe He does craft these things just for us. So that we will say, Lord, are you asleep? Are you absent? Are you gone? Do you not care about me? The personal pronouns are really, really strong in this story. Do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus says, you, where is your faith? It is very personal. Yes, they are a group of disciples, but every single one of them are experienced similar things. If God loved me, surely he would not let me go through these types of things. He would not let me sink, would he? So there's a good buddy of, uh, um, or not a good buddy, there's a buddy of mine in, in seminary, and uh, his name is Mike. And Mike, just, uh, he's just wicked smart, right? He, just, he, he passes all the tests and those kinds of things. But he's not just really smart, but he's also got just an unbelievable heart and, and an incredible pastor, um, he's about 10 years into his marriage, and uh, his wife gets an unbelievable um, uh, report back from the doctor that she has cancer. And so one, two, three, four, five years into this thing, they're fighting cancer. They're in chemo treatments. They're on, on, on the phone with doctors. They're sitting in, in ERs. I mean, it's just, just, just an unbelievable battle. And after years of fighting this thing, Julie ends up losing her life and, and dying to cancer. And so this puts not just a husband at risk, but an entire family of little kids at risk. And a a local church that he was leading at risk. Like, where is God in this? Was she not the model citizen? Was she not doing everything you ask her to do? Lord, why would this happen to her? 
years later after writing about these types of episodes. Um, Mike would then go on to say that these things are heavy providences, which is his quote. These moments where God is providential, yes, but what he brings is heavy. It's not light. And so what happens in the season of life where you don't get what you want, where you have lost control and the thing, this thing may take you out? What do you do with the heavy providences of God? Mike goes on to say this, cancer, perhaps unlike anything else, has a way of focusing your attention on eternal realities. There's, there's something about storms. There's something about sickness that make you look at something other than right here and right now. There's got to be something else. And this, of course, is always a good thing for, we, for us to get our focus off of ourselves and onto something else. We need to be mercifully weaned from this world so that we can see something of the glory of something else revealed to us. The American dream makes it difficult. I share this story because I believe the American church desperately needs this perspective on life. The perspective captured in the profoundly simple hymn of the old song, This World is Not My Home. And yet the American dream continues to tell us this world is my home and I'm putting down roots right here and now. The storms of life will have you or force you to ask some really hard questions. And the hardest question this morning will be, is this purposeful? Is this storm on purpose or is it accidental? Did the capital T, teacher, put these disciples in the classroom on purpose or was it accidental? Is the entire world just this one big, just chaotic scheme or is there something of purpose in it? Jesus is the one who says early on in our passage, he said, let's go to the other side. We have to begin to trust that God, the great teacher, is telling us. And so we know that God is great and we know that he is powerful, but is he good? And in these moments of life where you're like, I know you can make this go away. I know that you are powerful. It's in those moments that you have to hold both of these truths in line with one another. Yes, you are powerful, and yes, you are good. And if God is powerful enough to calm a, a, a great big storm on a Galilean sea, he is strong enough to bring purpose to every single storm of your life. If he's strong enough to bring it, he's strong enough and he's wise enough to bring purpose to all of those storms. And right now, if you're struggling with faith or you're struggling with doubt, it's that God is out of control and he does not have the, a purpose to those storms of your life. And so Jesus comes with a great calm, doesn't he? This is not the end of the story. Verse 39 and following, and he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 39 says, So he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
And that's our second great, our second mega, is this fact that not only is the storm great, but the calm is equally as great. We see Jesus do two simultaneous miracles right in front of the disciples' eyes. Not only does the wind stop, but the sea, like glass. I mean, the stuff that you ski on, right? I mean, just like glass, just in an instant, peace, be still. And the, the winds were stilled and the sea was calmed two simultaneous miracles right after one another. And what happens? This storm and this wind reacts to the command of Jesus's voice by his word. At the word of Jesus, all things can be made calm and be made still. That's the authority and that's the power of Jesus. We've seen this and we've heard this word before, rebuked. Remember when the man with the unclean spirit came and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and an evil spirit ran as far as they can, could. And so he rebuked with, with a word, the evil uh, spirit is cleansed. With a word, the guy with a withered hand or the guy with leprosy immediately healed. With a word, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and go. I mean, with a word, forgiveness and healing simultaneous. And with the authority of Jesus' own word, he says, follow me. You don't need the miracles. You don't need the teachings. By the authority of Jesus' words, he says, follow me. This is the type of authority that Jesus has. That ought his very simple syllables, three words, not, I mean, not even a double piece, be still. All right, He didn't even get to like a three-syllable word. It's just simple stuff. Be calm. And it happens. Jesus' miracles are awesome. Did you see the dude with a withered hand just straighten it out? That's amazing. No, 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 I got something better than that. There was a guy with an evil spirit, and then all of a sudden, like the spirits went shrieking out. I've never heard anything like that. That was crazy cakes. So yes, those are good stories, and those are great. But when Jesus stands, yes, the lepers leprosy is a big deal, right? And the evil spirits are a big deal. But when a human stands at the bow of a boat and says, creation, obey me, there is nothing like that on earth. Jesus Christ, the son of man, came to say, I am God. And that's why we follow him. Not because of all of the tricks that he does, because he has command over everything. Follow me, he says. Follow me. I will bring purpose to even the most chaotic moments. And so if you're just following him because you're supposed to, it has to be more personal than that. You have to be affected by the, by the person and work of Jesus. It has to be personal to you. In the beginning, God said, and it was so. This has always been the character of God, that he wins. His authority reigns and rules. The problem is, here's the problem, except for you and I. Because the wind will obey like this. Evil spirits, I mean running Leprosy has, I mean, has, they, he did, leprosy didn't have a fight in front of Jesus. And yet the autonomous, kind of self-driven mo motives of your heart is not to fall underneath this kind of power and authority. 
we find ourselves more rebellious than submissive. And that's a problem for our hearts is because we believe that this world is about ourselves and about us. We do not give God the credit that he deserves. And at his word, it says. And so Jesus is able to come with corrective, rebuking kind of language. And we are, and he's just, I mean, like a little puppy dog. He says, sit, sit, right? Wins. Evil spirit, I mean, just obey at a moment's command. He even uses the same words with, with, with Peter when he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. These are the corrective words of Jesus. And let this hit home to you this morning. Are you willing to be rebuked by Jesus? Have you heard the, re- the corrective language of Jesus in your heart and in your disbelief and in your doubt and in your fears? Are you allowing him to speak into those moments? The theme of this, this sermon is resetting your mind, right? To set, like, we have to have our minds change because of chapter 8 and verse uh, Mark, Mark uh, Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, Peter, set your mind on the things of God, not the things of man. And so week in and week out, we continue to bang this drum that you have to have your mind set on something other than your circumstances and your doubts and your fears. In this one small passage alone, Jesus says, the things of God, if you want to start resetting your mind, the things of God are things of faith and the things of trust and the things of obedience. This idea of fellowship, this idea that he is the owner, that he, is, that he, he, he wants obedience. The things of man, the things of man are anxiety and fear of death, a lack of faith and doubt. Doubt that God is present, doubt that God is able to provide, and doubting God's power. The reason Jesus talks so sternly to his disciples is because it's very simple. Those disciples are with Jesus. That's it. You have nothing to fear if you're with me, Jesus says. His disciples are rebuked. All right, really quick, and then there's a fear, and there's the only thing that you need to know here is that, uh, verse uh, 40, and when he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And verse 41 is kind of like the dun-dun-dun moment of the passage. And they were all filled with great fear. This is where the original uh, language is actually really, really helpful here. It says fear upon fear. Now, there's no, there's it's just fear, uh, just exponential fear. It just happened. So there's some repetition here. Fear, great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the, the wind and the sea obey him? There's fear, great fear. This is, this is where fear and awe really kind of sink deep into our heart. Are you willing to follow Jesus into the great storm. He says, let's go to the other side. The boat matters, the storms matter. And so the belief is that Jesus is your teacher is important. The teacher, is the, the teacher knows more than you is important. 
But the fact is that the teacher knows you and knows your frailties. And he also is taking you on a journey. This book is about Jesus being the son of God. But it's also about discipleship about those people, those men, women, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students who are willing to follow Jesus into the storms on purpose because we believe that Jesus is not just powerful, but he brings purpose to everything. It's not the quality of your faith, Jesus will continue to say. It can be small. It can be tiny. It can be non-existent. Your faith has to have an object. Follow me, he will say, over and over and over. I wouldn't trust myself after reading this passage. I would know myself, know my doubts, know my fears, know that I'm clinging too tightly to this world, right? I wouldn't trust myself. I would want, as, as, a, as, a, as a faith community, to begin to trust Jesus. All right, so um, this passage is, is told. This is the second time we've heard this in, uh, the, in the scriptures. Because the first time we heard this was in the book of Jonah, if you remember. There was in the book of Jonah and this passage. I mean, it just parallels um, it just almost perfectly. We spent all summer in the book of Jonah. It was, it was amazing. There was in both passages, there's a boat. That's good. In both uh, stories, there's a great storm, and that's great. In both stories, the boats themselves start to talk and threaten to break up, which is amazing. In both, Jonah and Jesus were asleep. Uh, in both, the, the crew are scared to death. In both, uh, the sea uh, claimed um, that uh, this, the sea was calmed by something miraculous. But in both, there was more fear over the calming effect than fear over the storm. And this is what in scriptures we would just call awe. That there was more fear over the calm than there was fear over the storm. Jesus himself, if you're asking this morning, would God ever let me go through this? Just know that Jesus is the greater Jonah. And Jesus actually threw himself into the sea of sin and death for you and I. So would God ever allow your, this to be an uncomfortable experience for you? Yes, because he didn't even spare his own son, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was willing to be thrown into the sea of sin and death so that we would know very personally that we would know peace be still over our own life. This is not about a thunderstorm on the Sea of Galilee. This is what he promises to each one of you and I, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, take heart. What? I have overcome this world. You stick with me. Ultimately, there will be a time and a space where there will be no more tears. There will be no more illness. There will be a peace and a stillness that will come at the inauguration of Jesus coming and claiming us for himself. And that'll be a glorious day. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray now as we walk into this time of communion that we would see Jesus as, as you have depicted yourself. It's not just powerful, but you are a teacher who teaches on purpose. 
we don't do this a lot around here, but there's some in here that are experiencing the storms of life at just the highest level and are scared to death. And you are asking in your heart, Lord, do you not care? And you hate that about yourself. You hate that those questions are in your heart and your mind. Well, we've stationed um, uh, men, women in the back corner to pray for you. And so I would encourage you that if, if you're in a season of doubt and you just need someone to pray with you, to come alongside with you, I just, I'd ask you now just to slip out of your seat and, and go to the back. It's just a quiet, safe place back there where you've got, if you're a guy, there's a guy back there. If you're a gal, there's a female back there that would love to pray for you. If the tenor of your heart is, is doubt and you want that doubt to be brought into perspective this morning, you just want someone, a brother and a sister, to come alongside you and pray. It'd be great. That's what they're there for. And in the same way, um, some of you are following Jesus because of the kickbacks. Or following Jesus because you're supposed to. You never knew that this, the Christian life could be uncomfortable and your life could be threatened. Again, if, if you're in a, a season of transition and just need someone guidance or counsel or prayer, just know that we've got people back there who would love to pray for you. Jesus, we approach your, your table now with boldness and a surety that, do, that does not belong to us. We should not say the types of things that we are about to say, but it's all true because of what Jesus has said about us. Jesus, thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins through the body and the work of Christ Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen. And so every, every Sunday we come to the table and we have this little thing etched. It says, do this in remembrance of me. And so this, this piece of bread represents the body of Jesus. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, it said that Jesus took a, a loaf just like this and he broke it and he says, I'm doing, this and remember, uh, I'm doing this because my body has been given to you. And so in this brokenness of Jesus' body, he tells us that there's going to have to be a deconstruction, like a transformation of my body. What was once whole has to actually look shattered, right, for your sake. But then the image gets a little more graphic when he opens um, a chalice of wine. We have grape juice here. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And the new covenant is the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to be made whole, Jesus says, my, I have to give up myself. If you want the wine of celebration and party and freedom, then I have to give my blood for you. And so in these, these symbols of sustenance and celebration, Jesus says, I'll have to offer these things down so that you guys will be able to enjoy these. And that's what it means to do this in remembrance of Jesus. It's Jesus who we're following. It's not your doubts. It's not your fears. We should approach the table with celebration, knowing that Jesus has asked us to a table of remembrance of what he has done, not the credibility of who you are. We do this and we follow him. And so this morning, as you take the bread and you drink the cup, do this in remembrance of Jesus who 
says, peace be still over your lives. So go ahead and stand. We've got men around the corners. Um, I'll be up front serving as well. Uh, take your time uh, to, to take whenever. Take with your families. If you're new to Redstone, haven't been here before, you're going to actually start seeing some family clusters. Just pause and give thanks to Jesus in family groups or community groups or um, uh, potential uh, church plants in Elizabethan. So just all kinds of little groups going around, which is amazing. Uh, so don't be afraid or don't be freaked out about the fact that people are, are gathering and, and grouping up. But yeah, these stations are open. Enjoy a table of remembrance of Jesus.